The United States military had a solid understanding of basic public health measures in 1918. They knew, for example, that overcrowded sleeping quarters were a guaranteed way to spread illness. Strict regulations were in place, allocating plenty of space around each bed. But in September 1918, Colonel Charles Hagedorn decided to override the regulations. He was in command of Camp Grant in Rockford, Illinois, about 90 miles northwest of Chicago. The camp was bursting at the seams. Troops were housed in tents, but winter was coming fast. Hagedorn lifted the rules on overcrowding to fit more men in the barracks. Medical personnel argued with Hagedorn. They had received worrying reports about a new illness spreading across the country. It seemed to be a type of influenza, although not like any flu anyone had ever seen before. Hagedorn told the doctors that they would simply have to treat any illness that came their way. His orders would stand. That was on September 20th, 1918. The very next day, men started reporting to the base hospital with aches, pains, coughs, and high fevers. By midnight, 108 were sick. The next day, another 194 men were admitted to the hospital. The day after that, 371 more. The first death was on September 25th. The exact same day, more than 3,000 troops were loaded onto trains headed for Camp Hancock near Augusta, Georgia. No one sick was supposed to get on board, but the flu has an incubation period of up to four days. The virus was hiding in the bodies of men who looked perfectly healthy. They boarded and the train set out on its 950-mile journey. Within hours, soldiers began to fall ill. This is the year that was, 1919. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday. Today, we're talking about the Spanish flu pandemic that lasted from spring 1918 to spring 1920. It's easy to forget that while everything else was going on in 1919, this terrible disease was ravaging the planet. It's really hard to appreciate the scale of the Spanish flu. 50 to 100 million people died in the flu pandemic. 100 million people is the sort of number that doesn't even make sense. That's roughly the population of the world's three largest metropolitan areas, Tokyo, Jakarta, and Delhi combined. That's every living soul in Egypt or in Germany. That's California plus Texas plus Florida plus Illinois. Honestly, these comparisons don't help much. At least they don't help me. This is the kind of story where I have to zoom in to try to understand it. So let's narrow our focus to a train rattling from Illinois to Georgia in early fall 1918. There's a fascinating oral history in the collection of the University of Illinois at Springfield from a man named Benjamin S. Du Bois. Du Bois went on to be a judge and a political figure, but in 1918, he was a second lieutenant at Camp Grant. He was one of the officers charged with supervising troops on their way to Georgia. Du Bois worried about the flu, but the camp doctors reassured him. 
The soldiers were examined three times in the 24 hours before departing, and as they boarded, doctors watched for anyone who looked flushed or unsteady. Six men were pulled out of the line and sent to the hospital. The train headed out, but even as it neared Chicago, men began falling ill. Du Bois walked up and down the aisles looking for sick soldiers. At first, he isolated them in the last coach, hoping to limit the spread of the disease, but it was far too late for that. Soon the sick sprawled up and down the train. Du Bois could do little to help them except hand out aspirin. For three days, Du Bois just tried to keep them alive. When the train finally pulled in at Camp Hancock, Du Bois was greeted by all of the camp's ambulances and the general in command. The general shouted at him, and I quote from the oral history, What the blankety blank 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 did you bring that outfit down here for? Of the 3,108 troops who traveled from Camp Grant to Camp Hancock, 2,000 would be hospitalized. Death records are unclear, but it seems likely that at least 10% of them died. Du Bois returned to Camp Grant, where the sick were laid in barracks, in depots, on porches. All other base operations had ceased. The healthy were entirely consumed with caring for the sick or transporting the dead. Bodies piled up. Undertakers were brought in from Chicago and Aurora. By October 8th, the death toll had reached more than 500, and it was clear that it would continue to rise. The camp's chief medical officer reported the numbers to Colonel Hagedorn. You can imagine that meeting in Hagedorn's office, the doctor exhausted, Hagedorn drawn and tense. You can picture the long silence that followed the counting of the dead. Then Hagedorn dismissed the doctor, who returned to care for the sick and the dying. According to witness accounts, Hagedorn sat for a moment. Then he ordered his sergeant to assemble all of the headquarters personnel and stand outside for inspection. This was a strange order, but his men complied. They stood outside and ordered ranks for half an hour, wondering what was going on. What was Hagedorn thinking back in his office? Was he remembering the order to overcrowd the barracks? Was he thinking of Camp Hancock with thousands now sick in its hospital? Of the other camps where troops had been transferred? Could he not face the deaths of the young men, some still in their teens, under his command? Hagedorn had fought the Spanish in Cuba, hunted guerrillas in the Philippines, and chased Pancho Villa across northern Mexico. He had lost men before, but not like this. The headquarters staff waited. Then they heard a shot. They found Hagedorn dead at his desk. Another 500 men would die at Camp Grant before the influenza outbreak ended. Influenza has been killing people for at least 5,000 years. Flu is a virus commonly found in birds, particularly water birds like ducks. Sometimes the virus can jump from one species to another. That seems to be what happened in 1918. Several factors determine how dangerous a new flu virus will be. The first is how easily the virus can be transmitted. The 1918 virus, labeled H1N1, was capable of spreading quickly through the air. Standing near a person with the flu was enough to catch it yourself. 
The second factor is how much immunity a population has against the virus. Once you've recovered from a flu variant, you are immune to that variant for the rest of your life. But the flu virus mutates rapidly and new variants appear regularly. A completely new variant that no one had ever seen before, like H1N1, can be devastating to an entire population. The third factor is how sick the virus makes infected individuals. The 1918 virus was particularly virulent. It hit fast and it hit hard. Many people died of secondary infections, particularly bacterial pneumonia. Other victims were hit with viral pneumonia combined with a massive immune system overreaction that caused severe damage to the lung tissue that delivers oxygen to the blood. This is known as acute respiratory distress syndrome. Even today, when these patients are treated in intensive care wards, the mortality rate is between 35 and 50 percent. In 1918, flu patients with acute respiratory distress almost never survived. The final factor is how much opportunity the virus has to spread. If sick individuals are immediately quarantined, the virus stops there. But 1918 through 1920 were years of vast and rapid movement of people around the world. If you wanted to design the ideal situation for a pandemic, you couldn't do much better than 1918. What happened next was an accident. No one planned it. No one wanted it. But you can't claim that the Spanish flu pandemic was an entirely natural disaster because decisions were made by people who knew better. Humans aren't to blame for the flu, but some humans definitely made it worse. Researchers don't know where the Spanish flu began. What they do know is that it had nothing to do with Spain. Spanish newspapers reported widely on the course of the flu, leading many to assume it had its start there. In fact, Spain was one of the few European countries where the press wasn't subject to wartime censorship. Other countries had flu outbreaks before Spain, but they weren't reported. Several starting points have been proposed, including the Midwestern United States, Northern China, and Western France. It's also possible the flu started somewhere else entirely. It's likely we'll never know exactly where it began, but once soldiers, sailors, and war workers were infected, they carried the disease around the globe. The pandemic had three phases. The first outbreak began in early April 1918. It was noticed on both sides of the Atlantic, in the East Coast cities of the U.S., and in western ports of France about the same time. It quickly reached the armies on the Western Front. By May, it had spread to Eastern Europe, North Africa, India, and China. It was a relatively mild illness, uncomfortable, but not devastating. Very few people died. The outbreak did disrupt the plans of German Quartermaster General Erich Ludendorff, who launched a major spring offensive on March 21st. The offensive stalled in April, just as the flu reached the front lines. Ludendorff complained that, quote, it was a grievous business having to listen every morning to the chiefs of staff's recital of the number of influenza cases. On the other hand, French and British troops were also weakened by the flu, and multiple causes can be found for the failure of the offensive. 
The illness faded over the course of the summer. Then, in August, it returned in a new and terrifying form. This was the second and the most deadly phase of the pandemic. It broke out in three major port towns almost simultaneously, Boston, Massachusetts, Freetown, Sierra Leone, and Brest, France. From Boston, it spread through North America and down into Central America. From Freetown, it traveled into Central Africa. From Brest, it moved quickly across Europe and into Russia. Desperate attempts were made to limit the spread of the disease. On October 17th, Australia ordered a quarantine. American Samoa also imposed a strict blockade, and no one there died of the flu. In contrast, in Western Samoa, which didn't have a quarantine, one in four perished in the pandemic. Another successful quarantine was imposed in Gunnison, Colorado, a small town in the Colorado Rockies. Gunnison police blocked all through roads. Train conductors warned passengers if they set foot on the Gunnison platform, they would be arrested and quarantined for five days. No one died in Gunnison, Colorado. But they died everywhere else. Individuals could go from healthy to dead in hours. Some simply collapsed on the street. Most doctors agreed that the illness was influenza, and many believed influenza was a virus. But in 1918, no one knew exactly what a virus was or how it caused disease. Some researchers wondered if this was something else entirely. Typhus? Cholera? A variant of the plague? In Ireland, a public health official asserted that, quote, poisonous matter from millions of unburied bodies was constantly rising into the air, unquote, from the Western Front, and was, quote, then blown all over the world by winds. Some experts suggested this was some kind of bio-warfare. The doubt and confusion is understandable. No one had seen flu like this before. The disease caused the usual symptoms, fever, coughs, aches, exhaustion, but that was only the beginning of the awful things it could do. Some people bled from the nose and the mouth. Many struggled to breathe, and their skin developed a bluish tinge. Dark red spots appeared over their cheekbones and spread from ear to ear. Their fingers and toes turned black. The Spanish flu hit people between 20 and 40 particularly hard. Pregnant women were at great risk, and the flu often caused miscarriages and premature births. Well, I'll tell you, every woman that was pregnant died to taking that flu, that uh, in influenza. I had a sister-in-law died, and uh, my sister died. And then I had several cousins die. That's Nanny Ferris, and the man who just interrupted her was her husband, James. They were interviewed about the flu as part of the Piedmont Southern History Project in 1979 in Spray, North Carolina. Thing about it is, uh, people that die, it, uh, the very stoutest of people would. Uh, now we had a farmer at the place I worked. He, uh, he, I used to go out to the ballroom and smoke a cigarette, you know, and me and him are pretty good friends. 
One day I went out there and he said he wouldn't die, I said he's sick. And I went out there the next day and they said he was dead. They died just that quick with it. Sometimes. And a man across the street done the same thing, died overnight, walking around his yard the day before. People must have been pretty afraid, too. Oh, the scared oh, people were scared to death then. Oh, you know, it was just a nervous wreck. That was a terrible time. The experience of Nanny and James was repeated around the world. In Philadelphia, the archbishop allowed cloistered nuns to leave their convents and set aside their vows of silence to tend to the sick. In Prescott, Arizona, it became illegal to shake hands. In New York City, nurses were held against their will by the families of patients too desperate to let them leave to treat others. In Zamora, Spain, the bishop ordered his flock to repent of their sins. Huge crowds gathered for worship services. At one church, the faithful lined up to kiss the relics of a beloved saint, one after another. Zamora had the highest death rate in Spain. In Odessa, Russia, the Jewish community held an ancient ritual to prevent pestilence called a black wedding. A bride and groom were chosen among the poorest in the city, then married in a raucous ceremony observed by thousands. Odessa was caught in the turmoil of the Russian Revolution and occupied by three different military forces between October and December 1918. People were hungry and a cholera outbreak was already raging. It's estimated 1.2% of the population of Odessa died of influenza. 1.2% honestly wasn't that bad. It was worse than the death toll in North America, which had a mortality rate of about 0.5%. But Mashhad Persia lost 5% of its population. Gujarat, India, 6.1%. Siskai, South Africa, 9.9%. Western Samoa, 22%. The story of Bristol Bay, Alaska is one of the most horrifying. Coast Guard ships were sent to investigate rumors of illness on the chain of islands that stretches southwest of the mainland. They found whole families lying dead in their homes. When rescue parties could find no one to rescue, only bodies that couldn't be buried in the frozen ground, they splashed buildings with kerosene and set entire villages alight. The death toll in Bristol Bay is estimated at 40%. By early December, the second wave of the flu had largely burned itself out. But in the spring of 1919, just as everyone began to relax, a third wave hit. This phase was more lethal than the first wave, but less than the second. It struck just as Australia lifted its quarantine. About 40% of the Australian population fell ill, and around 15,000 died. Mortality was particularly heavy among Aboriginal communities, which had death rates of up to 50%. The flu pandemic finally ended in the Northern Hemisphere in May 1919. The Southern Hemisphere would continue to suffer for several months. The Spanish flu retreated for good by early spring 1920. The pandemic revealed several hard truths. 
First, modern transportation systems were the flu's best friend. Railroads and steamships could carry illness to every corner of the globe within weeks. Second, doctors had few effective tools. The only way to prevent infection was isolation, and the only treatment was careful nursing while the disease ran its course. Third, governments around the world had proven helpless in the face of the disaster and often made decisions that made the disease worse. Let's look first at what happened in the United States beginning in Philadelphia. When the flu hit Philadelphia, the city was overflowing with soldiers, European immigrants, and African Americans fleeing the South. There was a housing shortage and people were crammed into tenements. Conditions were ideal for spreading disease. And sure enough, in mid-September 1918, sailors began going down with the flu. Nevertheless, the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin assured readers that this was just ordinary flu, nothing to worry about, no big deal. This was typical. Perhaps some newspaper editors really believed the disease wasn't that bad, but more likely they were following the government line. When the U.S. joined the war in April 1917, the American press agreed to censor itself. The government wanted everyone focused 100% on the war effort, working nonstop to build guns, knit socks, and grow Liberty Gardens. Negative news that might discourage the populace was verboten, although no one would have said verboten because that's a German word and the country had recently gone to the trouble to rename sauerkraut Liberty Cabbage. A deadly flu outbreak was exactly the sort of negative news that might harm morale, so it had to be systematically downplayed. Nevertheless, the day after the evening bulletin told everyone not to worry, civilians started showing up in Philadelphia hospitals. The director of the public health service was a doctor named Wilmer Crewson, and he poo-pooed the risk of the flu. He told the papers that no epidemic illness was to be found in Philadelphia, and there was nothing to get upset about. Meanwhile, plans were underway to hold a massive parade through downtown Philadelphia. The parade was for Liberty Loans, the war bonds sold to support the war effort. Liberty Loans were presented as a patriotic duty, and those who didn't buy them were sometimes reported to the police as German spies. Thousands would march in the parade, and tens of thousands would watch it. Philadelphia's doctors were appalled. They begged Crewson to stop the parade. One doctor tried to convince the press to warn people not to attend, but newspapers refused to listen to his story. Crewson finally agreed to other measures to prevent overcrowding. He limited the number of passengers on streetcars, for example, but he refused to cancel the parade. It was a magnificent event. One historian describes, quote, two miles of bands, flags, Boy Scouts, women's auxiliaries, Marines, soldiers, and sailors. Several hundred thousand people jammed the parade route, crushing against one another to get a better look. It was a grand sight indeed. Two days after the parade, Crewson admitted that the epidemic was rampant in Philadelphia. Three days after the parade, every single bed in every single hospital was full. Crewson banned all public meetings and closed all churches, schools, and theaters. 
people caught spitting on the street were arrested. It was all too little too late. And yet the newspapers kept saying everything was fine. It was just fine. There was nothing to worry about. The public ledger assured readers, quote, there is no cause for panic and alarm. You know, people aren't stupid. They saw family members falling ill. They watched their neighbors die. They read the pleas of the Red Cross begging for anyone with nursing experience to volunteer. They stopped believing anything the newspapers told them. At the worst of the epidemic, the city ran out of coffins. At least half a million Philadelphians fell sick. On the single day of October 10th, 759 people died of the flu. In comparison, deaths from all causes, from illness, accident, murder, or suicide, averaged 485 a week. Philadelphia was one of the worst hit cities in the country, but its experience wasn't unusual, nor was the reaction of its press. The public health commissioner of Chicago told the press that, quote, worry kills more people than the epidemic. The Albuquerque Morning Journal told its readers, don't let flu frighten you to death. That's not how viruses work. That's not how any of this works. Yes, it makes sense to keep the public calm, but substituting reassurance for real action, like canceling a parade, seems deeply irresponsible. The priorities of the U.S. government got in the way of real public health protection. For example, the number one way that flu jumped from location to location was via troop transports. But the military refused to restrict the movement of troops. The Surgeon General of the Army had informed the Army Chief of Staff that all transfers between camps should be frozen. The Chief of Staff ignored him. Tens of thousands of soldiers were subjected to nightmare journeys, like the one that 2nd Lieutenant Du Bois took from Illinois to Georgia. There was also no halt in troop shipments to Europe. Approximately 100,000 troops journeyed to Europe in the autumn of 1918. The scenes on these ships were something out of Dante, when the sick bays filled up and all the bunks were filled with coughing, bleeding, delirious men. The sick were laid in rows on deck, exposed to wind, rain, and massive North Atlantic waves. Then began the burials at sea. The one sensible military decision made at this time was by Provost Marshal Enoch Crowder on September 26th. He canceled the draft. 142,000 men had been scheduled to arrive for training in the next few weeks. He claimed his decision was solely to prevent added strain on the camps already overwhelmed by the pandemic. He likely saved thousands of lives. The U.S. government wasn't alone in failing its people during the flu. While this failure had relatively few long-term consequences in the United States, it would change history in other countries. Let's look at two examples in countries that we will spend future episodes discussing in more detail. First, Ireland. About 23,000 people in Ireland died of the flu, a death rate of about 0.75% of the total population. 
The British government seemed helpless. At the height of the epidemic, the best public health officials could do was suggest the Irish eat hearty meals and avoid overcrowding. In a country where large swaths of the population could afford neither adequate food nor housing, this went beyond laughable to insulting. The situation was made worse when several independence activists died of the flu in British prisons. We're going to talk about the Irish independence movement in a few episodes, but the critical point is that many Irish wanted freedom from Britain and had tried to spark a revolution in the Easter Rising of spring 1916. The British had brutally suppressed the Rising and imprisoned everyone involved. Among those jailed was Richard Coleman. Coleman died on December 9, 1918, of the flu. The independence organization Sinn Féin widely publicized Coleman's death and claimed that he had been refused proper medical treatment by the British. The flu became yet another source of resentment against British rule. At the same time, independence activists earned the gratitude of many by helping the sick. Kumanaman was a women's organization formed in 1914 as an auxiliary to the Irish Volunteer Army, and I hope I'm not butchering that name too badly. When the pandemic struck, its members volunteered to nurse patients in the community, and the organization opened a free hospital in Dublin. Many Irish without strong political convictions were deeply grateful to Kumanaman and began looking favorably on their cause. A similar situation played out in India. India was one of the worst hit parts of the world, if not the worst. It's impossible to know the total number who died in the epidemic, but it's estimated between 10 and 20 million. That was about 5% of the population of what is today Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. The British were completely unequipped to respond. They had never paid much attention to the health conditions of native Indians. Few doctors were left in the country, most were off with the army, and nursing in India was in its infancy. The situation was exacerbated by drought, famine, and British insistence on maintaining the status quo. Crops died without water. Harvests were not gathered in, and new fields not planted because so many in the countryside were sick. The British nevertheless demanded pre-drought, pre-flu quantities of grain shipments, only halting the export of wheat when the worst had already passed. Food prices doubled. Now even more people were hungry and susceptible to illness. Into the vacuum stepped organizations tied to the growing Indian independence movement. Self-rule groups delivered supplies and collected bodies for burial or cremation. Ignoring the fault lines in Indian society, these organizations provided services with no regard to religion or caste. In the single district of Surat on the west coast of India, the relief organization reached, according to one conservative estimate, 10,000 people. The work of these volunteers created enormous goodwill toward the independence movement. Among those who fell sick with the flu in India was a 49-year-old attorney and independence activist. Mohandas K. Gandhi was struck by the flu in November 1918 and needed months to recover. 
Gandhi wasn't the only political leader laid low by the flu. Kaiser Wilhelm had the flu, as well as David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of England, and the young American politician Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The King of Spain, the Emperor of Ethiopia, and the Prime Minister of New Zealand all fell sick. It has been suggested that Woodrow Wilson also had the flu. This would have been in April 1919, in the middle of the Paris Peace Conference. There's always been some question why Wilson took sick that spring. It was announced that he had a cold. But the third wave of the pandemic was raging, and the flu was everywhere in Paris. Wilson's own doctor believed he was suffering from influenza. Some historians think the flu weakened the president at a time he should have held firm against Clemenceau's plans to punish Germany with heavy reparations. This seems to be a minority viewpoint among scholars. Most think you can find adequate explanation for Wilson's change of heart without resorting to influenza. There is more support for the idea that his spring illness, if it was the flu, contributed to his stroke in October. Repeated studies have established there is a heightened risk of stroke after a bout of influenza. The flu had lasting consequences for many survivors. Some were left with persistent ear and sinus infections, among them composer Bella Bartok and aviator Amelia Earhart. Others struggled with lingering depression and anxiety, even paranoia. There's some evidence that the flu caused delusions and hallucinations similar to schizophrenia. Babies born in 1919 whose mothers had survived the flu were, on average, shorter than those who had not been exposed prenatally. They also suffered increased rates of physical disability, lower rates of educational attainment, and lower incomes. The world was in such a confused state in 1918 and 1919 that those who fell sick sometimes encountered a changed world when they recovered. When author Franz Kafka fell into a high fever, he was the subject of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. When he emerged from it a few days later, he was a citizen of the brand new Czechoslovak Republic. The flu hit a young Hungarian physicist named Leo Szilard during the final stage of his training in the Austria-Hungarian military. He was still in the hospital recovering when he received a letter informing him his entire regiment had been killed in a single battle on the Italian front. The flu had actually saved Szilard's life. Szilard would go on to play a significant role in the development of the atomic bomb. Other survivors of the flu were artist Georgia O'Keeffe, movie star Mary Pickford, cartoonist Walt Disney, and novelist Raymond Chandler. Those who died in the pandemic included the brothers John and Horace Dodge, founders of the Dodge Motor Company, Sophie Halberstadt Freud, the daughter of Sigmund Freud, Gustav Klimt, the Austrian painter, and a barber, hotel manager, and real estate investor named Frederick Trump, the grandfather of the current U.S. president. It is a strange fact about the 1918-1919 flu pandemic that when it ended, no one wanted to talk about it. There is nothing about the flu in the work of Robert Frost, who was still weak and listless months later, T.S. Eliot, who worked on the wasteland during his recovery, or William Carlos Williams, a physician and poet who made 60 calls a day at the height of the crisis. Catherine Ann Porter, a journalist and novelist, was one of the few writers to describe her experience with the flu in her novella Pale Horse, Pale Rider. 
We talked in our first episode about two writers, William Butler Yeats and Lucy Maud Montgomery. Yeats never wrote about the flu, although his pregnant wife nearly died of the disease. This is perhaps not so strange. Yeats wrote mystical, symbolic poems and only occasionally touched on events in the real world. But Lucy Maud Montgomery also avoided the flu as a topic, and that does seem odd. Montgomery nearly died in the epidemic. Her marriage was severely strained during the crisis. She never really forgave her husband for what she considered his callous treatment of her during her illness. Her best friend, Frederica Campbell McFarlane, did die of the flu, with Montgomery sitting at her bedside. In fact, Rilla of Ingleside is dedicated to McFarlane. Yet Rilla of Ingleside never once mentions the influenza. The flu hit Prince Edward Island despite attempts to quarantine the island. In mid-October 1918, churches and schools were closed, public meetings banned, and public funerals outlawed. In the novel, Rilla's father, Gilbert Blythe, is a doctor. He would have been run off his feet treating patients, and it's unlikely that a family of eight would have escaped without a single member catching the disease. I can understand Montgomery's decision from a purely narrative point of view. The flu ruins the triumphant conclusion of the armistice. In fact, when the war ended, a solid proportion of the world's population was deathly ill. It would have been a difficult story decision for Montgomery, pages before the end, to introduce a whole new crisis that only resolved after peace was signed. And even that resolution isn't very satisfying people were sick, then either they died or they got better. Perhaps also it was too painful for Montgomery, still reeling from the death of her best friend, still angry at her husband, still perhaps recovering herself. Perhaps it was too painful for everyone. The flu happened, then it ended. No one wanted to write about it or even talk about it. Better to skip over it. The narrative of Rilla of Ingleside jumps from October 5th to November 7th. Many people would have been happy to skip those weeks as well. When the flu ended, no one knew how many people had died. In the 1920s, a scientist estimated a global death toll of 21.6 million. For years, that figure was considered definitive. Then in the 90s, epidemiologists began reevaluating the data. First, they suggested 30 million died, then 50 million. Today, as I said at the beginning, the figure is generally estimated between 50 and 100 million. The world population in 1919 was about 1.86 billion. That means the percentage of the population who died comes to between 5 and 2.5 percent of everyone alive on Earth. Other pandemics have been worse, both in terms of the total number of people killed and the proportion of the population. I personally don't find that fact particularly reassuring, but there it is. The Black Death, for example, killed between 75 and 200 million, about a third of the population of Europe, Asia, and North Africa. We don't even know where to begin to estimate the number of Native Americans who died in pandemics after European contact, but we're talking in the range of 80 to 90 percent of the total population of two continents. Nevertheless, the Spanish flu is the most deadly pandemic in recent history. 
For context, about 30 million people have died of HIV AIDS since 1981. About 11,000 died in the Ebola outbreak in Western Africa between 2013 and 2016. The most pressing question is, can it happen again? And the answer is, of course it can. New variants of influenza make their way into humans all of the time, and eventually one will arise that is just as deadly and just as contagious as H1N1. That much, at least, seems statistically assured. What happens next is up to us. The 1918 flu spread quickly because trains and steamships carried it to every corner of the globe. Today, cars and planes can move even larger numbers of people even more quickly. On the other hand, doctors can now rapidly identify flu. Reporting measures are in place to flag new cases, and public health organizations can impose travel bans and quarantines. We have vaccines for seasonal flu and antiviral medications that can lessen the disease. Researchers are hard at work on a universal flu vaccine that would provide immunity to all flu variants, old or new, and several promising candidates are undergoing testing. That really would be a game changer. Until a universal vaccine is available, I think one of the most important lessons we can take from the Spanish flu is that people in power need to be able to deal with more than one emergency at a time. The U.S. Army didn't ignore the flu because its generals were heartless. They ignored it because all of their attention was on winning the war. The British didn't dismiss the flu in India because they wanted millions of Indians to die. They dismissed it because they wanted Indian wheat to keep flowing into Europe. When Colonel Hagedorn put 3,000 soldiers on transport trains to Georgia, he didn't mean for 10% of them to die. He was doing his part to win the war. Yet neither he nor hundreds of his men would survive until Armistice Day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And it would be incredibly awesome if you left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast services. Check out the website, www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com. You can find photos and lots of links, as well as information about the sources I relied on to write this episode. I want to call particular attention to John M. Barry's The Great Influence and Laura Spinney's Pale Rider, two really great and informative reads. If you're curious about the Spanish flu, check them out. I've got links to these books on the episode page. And please visit the Facebook page and join the Facebook group. While you're there, share any family stories that you have about the Spanish flu. I asked this of friends a few months ago on Facebook, and it was fascinating to see what people had to say. Next week, we're going to talk about self-determination again, and the independence movements that were sweeping the globe. More 14 points. I know that you can't wait. Thanks again, and have a great week. This is Elizabeth Lunday, and this is the year that was 1919.